is up internet. Good night, Mr. Pocket. Sleep tight, Mr. Pocket. My name is Matthew Kroll. And can't no one compel another man to engage in recreation. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Film? Films? It's one film, but it's an anthology film. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to point. I that clicked out. one button and I saw six stories, so yeah. it's still a film. <laughs> uh, available on Netflix. So if you haven't seen it right now, it's easily accessible. I'm guess it's weird. I presume everyone has Netflix, but that's not the case. Not everyone has Netflix. I uh, guess not. But but I I guess if you're a movie lover. You know what? You I, probably have Netflix over any other service, right? Possibly. Here's the or HBO Go. I mean, it no, rotates. HBO Go is a little bit more difficult to access. But okay, so original films, Netflix, no question. Mm. Uh, but also, I would be interested. Email us in onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com if you are a a listener of this podcast and <laughs> b you don't have Netflix. If yep. you are that unique unicorn, yeah. I would love to speak to you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be kind of interesting if you don't have. I guess. I, I, but I could see it being possible that you wouldn't have Netflix. It's, it's entirely it's possible. It's entirely possible. And it is like, you know, I pre, I just write it off because I'm a movie lover that it's like not, you know, 10 bucks a month. But for some people, 10 bucks a month is a lot of money. And oh, no. So, I'm not talking. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I'm saying the cross section of people that listen to movie podcasts and yeah. don't have Netflix. Like, I think that they're, the importance factor of where they want to get, what, what they're putting yeah. their money into would probably be the same person. And the other thing with HBO Go is HBO Go is only available in the United States. So. What? So Netflix is interesting because, well, you know, we have listeners all over the world, right? And and our listeners in Hungary and um, um, Poland, sure. for example, uh, would be able to watch this film in in those countries. Yeah. They had HBO, I don't know if they'd have access to HBO Go. It. I, I read an interesting post this week about that sort of access question. Like someone was trying to get a copy of The Wire. Oh, and. They live in Australia, and they just wanted to, you know, wanted to be able to watch The Wire in HD. And basically, the only format that was available was to buy it on Google Play in ISD. Oh, and wow. I'm like, this is why piracy exists. This is a show that's 20 years old, and I can't buy it. Yeah, you know, to watch it, and that's why I pirate things. And another interesting thing, so kind of the reverse of what we're talking about right here. A lot of services like that are like individualized service, like this new Star Trek series that was on CBS All Access, and the new Teen Titans that's on like DC's streaming mm -hmm. service. Mm -hmm. Other countries don't have those. Specific specific services so they all just come out on Netflix. Yeah, in those countries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So no, like I, I just was reading about Teen Titans or Titans or whatever they're calling it how it's being released over there on Netflix but not here cuz you got to get DC's like sub service. Uh pro tip if you're interested get a VPN. Get or use a VPN Oh service, yeah, does that, that work? And that will like, uh, allow you access to Netflix international catalog. And I will say this, I've, I think I've said this before on the podcast. I prefer Netflix international catalog to their American catalog. I I'm sure it's better. It, yeah, it's it's smaller. It's much much smaller, but it's a higher quality of product okay. on 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 the international. It's really it's a higher quality of product, huh? Yeah, you can uh, really you can really feel the difference when ingesting it into your eyeballs. Let me put it this way: like for example, The Prestige is on Netflix International, but not available on Netflix US, and I think that's a bitter. You know, like I would watch that in a heartbeat at any point. That was like an, just an example, but hey. like also. Like the Mission Impossible movies are all available on Netflix International, but not available on Netflix US, for example. All you, right. You know what I mean? Like they've got bigger movies. It's purer, you'd yeah. say. The yeah. drug itself. Yeah, it's pure. It's not as it's not as cut. <laughs> yeah, it's not as cut with, with garbage or, or 19,000 stand-up specials you'll never watch. Uh, I, I, I Adam, watch a lot of the stand-up specials. Adam Sandler's latest stand-up special, you got to watch it. Okay, it's and I've been watching Russell Brand's. Uh, his is great, too. Oh, yeah? So um, rock and roll. But uh, okay, good, good, good. So this is a Netflix 
Netflix original film. It is. But before we get to the Netflix original film, I want to clear up something that we started last week. Oh, no, week. let's just keep going. Let's just keep talking no, about no, the no, new... No, 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 no. I think... Because money is involved. Oh, no. And you know what I'm like when it comes to my dineros. Uh, you, you're, you're Roberts? I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I need my dineros. You're Robert dineros. Because uh, I need to pay for my Netflix access. That is true. For me. Well, I'm about to pay at least a tenth of yours this month. That's exactly right. So last, And I want to point out, before we get into this as well, this is kind of a spoiler for Steve McQueen's Widows. We're going to try not to spoil it too much in what is about to ensue. I'm milking this for all it's worth. Yep. But uh, there is some spoilerific conversations here. So if you don't want to hear how Matt was wrong about something and I was right, you can just skip forward. Just I, know that fact for, for, for I a, can admit that I'm wrong without spoiling anything. All okay. I'm going to say is, did she know or not? Okay, did she okay. know or not? That's a pretty easy thing, so, we, so whatever. Okay. I said that she did know. Okay. In the movie, it's it, a, based on a visual cue. Yeah. And you said that she knew, but not based on the visual cue that I thought it was. Uh, because she didn't do an action I thought she did. That's what I'm going to say. That's clear enough. I was wrong. And we got lots of emails <laughs> talking about how I was wrong. Well, no, look, to be fair, nobody's calling you out on it because I think you even said on the episode that uh, you might have just glanced away at the wrong moment. That is not an excuse for being wrong. I was wrong. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, we got a couple different things. Um, we have one from LT Willio. Yeah. And uh, they, they had told us, uh, what up, Willio? Uh, while I believe Veronica knew that, oh, now yeah, we're going to- You're gonna, doing no, it. You're no, doing no, it. I was no. like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I can't do it. Okay, look, I'll just say it this way. LT Willio says uh, he knew that she didn't do the thing that you thought she did. Okay? Is that is that good enough for you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then Jacob, Jacob says said the same. that they were ninety nine percent sure. So, and we also got a tweet about it. So we're 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 one hundred percent here. I have won myself one whole dollar, which uh, I will keep. And uh, I don't have we'll, it on me. We'll just I'm do an IOU. To, we'll uh, we'll I, IOU for unless it. you have changed for a ten. Um, <laughs> but but the thing, you know, what's funny about this one? This is not even the biggest like difference of opinion or difference of fact that we've ever had. Like I wasn't, you know, like I could see how you could make. That uh, that presumption about what happened in Widows, like it wasn't. I don't think it's a big deal. It's just I think the only thing was is that you were so certain about well, it. Well, because it affected that perception affected yeah. the way that I thought about the rest of the movie. Right, and it was hard to tear myself back from that. Like you know, when you experience a thing to its completion, then someone's like, actually, the thing at the sixty percent point, you actually read that wrong, and you're like, what? Yeah, and then that does affect if it's a critical moment like that moment in Widows, th your entire perception of the rest of the tale. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to watch it again. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, that was the first ever Topam wager. Yeah, we, uh, you win. It's it's Shahir one, <laughs> yeah. Matt zero. There you go. Um, the other thing uh, I just wanted to point out an email from, I actually posted uh, one of our uh, episodes uh, uh, on Reddit, um, but this was very specific. Uh, we did an episode a few weeks ago called Experiencing Places Through Film, oh, yes. where we went to uh, Bilbao in Spain. Just and for the podcast. Just for the podcast. Yep, that's it. We just flew ourselves out there. Where are we going to fly to next, Matt? I say Tahiti. But sure. um, uh, we did the film Lorik. Lorik. Now, now, this is an interesting thing. Um, and I, passed, uh, I posted it in, in that Reddit forum, and we got uh, some feedback on that, which okay. I thought was really lovely. Um, first thing they wanted to mention was that uh, it is uh, hard when your native tongue has such a peculiar relationship with spelling as English does. In Basque and in Spanish, all vowels are pronounced and have one constant pronunciation. Therefore, and this is hard to read, it's... It's pronounced Loriac. 
Lorik. Not Lorik, as you kept saying. Ah. Um, uh, they also, uh, in that episode, we were commenting, we, we, uh, it was a funny episode. We were outside in a cafe recording and, and we were commenting about how poorly we spoke Spanish to the point where we ordered coffee and ended up with meat sticks. Yeah. Um, oh, did, they had an answer for that? Oh, they had a complete answer for what? that. What? Uh, they said, the meat sticks that you got at the Iruna were almost assuredly pinchos morunos, literally Moorish pointy sticks, which are known in other places as shish kebab. Yeah. It's one of the many Moorish meals which remain in Spanish cuisine. Although during the de-Islamization uh, period, meat was replaced with pork and in many other dishes. The Aruna ones and generally the Bilbao ones, very typical a lamb because the cook is of Moroccan origin, I believe. Um, I like this uh, next uh, paragraph as well. Your characterization of the Basque countryside is green mountains, curvy roads, and a tunnel, I think is one of the most accurate and succinct descriptions <laughs> of my perception of it. There's also an ocean, which is extremely important in our culture, but that's at least half of it. By the way, when you speak of Spanish movie makers, uh, you mentioned Alex de Iglesia, who uh, is actually from Bilbao. His oh, first okay. film, Acción Mutante, is set in Bilbao, but is very dystopic, futuristic Bilbao, um, which aesthetic comes directly from the 80s and early 90s, post-industrial depressed background of our city. Wow. Basically what it looked like when I was growing up. Uh, if you watch it, you'll see it's quite different tonally from what you may have seen here. Okay. So again, thank you very much for uh, that very specific feedback. I, I Do we have a username for that? Uh, that is Delcano. Delcano, thank you so much for taking the time and like, uh, I, I, that's the kind of like, I don't know. That's like the we fact want, checking well, I like. But we also wanted people from that region to, to tell listen. us what we were do, uh, to yeah. tell us stuff, and that's that's fascinating. I wish, uh, you know, thank you so much. That's so awesome. Um, so yeah, uh, again, uh, thank you everyone at, uh, email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod with your comments, feedbacks, or just calling Matt out on being wrong on stuff. Yeah, I'm going to milk this. It I'm never, gonna, it never gonna, happens except for the once. You're and that's have on to, the record. You're going to have to suffer through this. It's I'm on sorry. the record. Also, Shahir, you did a wonderful thing that I don't think we brought up in podcasts yet. Uh, we are now on Spotify. Oh yes, we are available on Spotify. Now, now. before that used to be prestigious. <laughs> now it's not. Now <laughs> it is not. Because they've opened the floodgates. Since we arrived. And we were the first pressed up against said gate holding back the flood, the torrent of audio <laughs> content that is exists on the interwebs. But we're there. And um, it's actually become my sort of go-to podcasting spot. I think that's very smart. Uh, it's, it's a. It's also really. It's a nicer format. Than it's I a really do. nice format. It, you, when you when you shoot links over to people and yeah. it's the Spotify link, like everything comes up and it's all formatted nice. Yeah. It's very very good. So you can now listen to us on Spotify. Maybe you are right now. But please do remember. I know. I know. I just shat on iTunes, but iTunes reviews are still really important to helping us spread the word and it helps us raise our profile on iTunes, which is still the largest podcasting network Truth. on the planet. So, even though I'm shitting on, you know, on iTunes, I'm just saying. <laughs> Just get on there and, and, you know, support the old iTunes or us on iTunes. Yeah, stars. Stars all the way. All right. Uh, this is the second Coen Brothers film that we have done uh, since we started this podcast. Sure. The other one being Hail Caesar. Um, quick summary of Coen Brothers. Love or dislike? How do you... How do you stand on the Coen Brothers? Uh, you know, you can go back and listen to the Hail Caesar podcast to kind of get that, but just a quick summary. Um, I like them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, always, uh, you know what I've noticed about you is you say that when you don't have too much to say. Well, that's the thing, because I really don't. Like, huh. their stuff is is sort of hit or miss for me. Really? Um, it, it's, it's always... Here, this is what I want to say. Okay. It... I, I can always see that it's done incredibly well, but I feel like sometimes their films aren't really for me. How so? Well, like, for instance, I want to get one of their lists up because I want to make sure I'm not forgetting. Okay, uh, so like uh, True Grit. Oh, what about No Country for Old Men? 
Good. That's a really that's a great movie. Um, <laughs> Fargo. Fargo. Yeah. Uh, tr- tr- Fargo is again. It's I know I understand it's great. Yeah. I just I've never been like oh man. True Grit. Yeah. I did dig the hell out of. Okay. Um. The it's it just the Big sort, Lebowski. Oh, that's that's fun. But I, but here's the thing. I think the Big Lebowski is culturally kind of overrated. Wow. Uh, I think it is super clever and funny, and it 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 is its own. Do you film. think it's fun? Yeah. Okay, because that is like you know how you always rag on me, yeah, like, yeah. you know, and I think I've always brought up the Big Lebowski. I think mm-hmm. the Big Lebowski is fun without being dumb. And and it even is not with, dumb. It, no, the thing is, it even plays in the space of being a dumb comedy. But it's it's very precise and smart, and that might be why uh, that might be why I think it <laughs> so works wait, so wait, well. Wait, and let's, it is, let's and establish it's, the definitions yet. You, you don't like it because it's not done. No, I said it was no, no, no. I said it was a good movie. Yeah. But I also think that it is culture around the Big Lebowski has poisoned my perception of the Big Lebowski. You're not going to the Lebowski face? Like, that's sort of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, the 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 culture around the film is kind of the culture that the film itself is making fun of, and it's it, it gets a little bit mixed up in that swirl. So, I, again, I, I will watch Big Lebowski. I like it fine. I just, yeah. I think the hype or, like, the, the cultural um, cachet around it uh, is one that kind of uh, kind of ruins it a little bit for me. Huh. But True Grit, I'd like to go back to True Grit. Okay. Because uh, I did dig the hell out of that. And it's so funny because one of my taglines that I go back and forth with uh, is I don't like Westerns. Yeah. And yet here came True Grit. And yeah. I was like, oh, damn. Such an easy Western to like. It's and, so good. Uh, even, you know, and a much lesser Western that's come out, and I won't say recently, it was years ago, but the remake of 310 to Yuma. Yeah, I really love that. Yeah, yeah, like that was, I think, a really great... So so I don't know, like, if... The only really true Western Western that I really, really have enjoyed is the classic High Noon, or, um, yeah, High Noon. Okay. Um, so... So yeah, what about you? How how do you how do you how do you fare here? I look the the, the Coen brothers to me are um, uh, they're the high watermark of what it means to be a filmmaker to me. It's it's like, like in my mind, it's unfair how good they are at what they do. <laughs> they are they are uh, consummate consummate filmmakers. Not only as technical craftsmen, which they don't really get called out for a lot. Like I was thinking about it in relation to the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh-huh. They're um, they've never done an out and out action movie or an out and out genre movie right. ever. Um, but you know, so they don't really ever get called out for like being technically adept. Uh, like the way Spielberg does, or the way Peter Jackson does, sure. or the way you know James Cameron does, or whatever. But they are probably the greatest living action filmmakers that have never made an action movie. And I and the uh, like. Take a look at No Country for Old Men. Take a look at True Grit. Those movies are the best action sequence. Like the the scene in No Country for Old Men where he's being chased by a dog is one of the most precise, one of the most terrifying, and one of the most exhilarating action sequences I've ever seen on screen. Um, these, and, and, and what I love about them, aside from that, is they're also philosophically really interesting filmmakers. Yes. I think they have a lot to say in their films. The thing that's really frustrating uh, about the Coen brothers to me is they don't give interviews. They don't like talk much about their process or their craft or anything like that. They're just, and like when they do, they're just like, eh, you know, I just wrote it. Uh, we just made this film. And they, they churn these things out so quickly. I think this run that they had um, with No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, 
inside Lewid Navis and True Grit as well. That's like one of the most extraordinary runs in any filmography in the history of cinema. And then, I mean, I know that this is uh, more of a producer uh, role, but um, oh no, they directed uh, Oh Brother too, right? They directed Oh Brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out there, yeah. So, so that was one of my favorites back then. I think I just I sort of lost track, and I'm sure there's more film if I go down the like sort Raising of list. Arizona, Blood Simple, yeah. Mil- um, Barton Barton Fink is one of my favorite movies. Of I have all not time. seen Barton Fink. I I that's that's another one of those comfort movies for me. Ah. I, I'll watch that at any at any time of the day. Um, they've missed. They've obviously missed a couple of times. I think the Lady Killers is a little weak. Intolerable Cruelty is a little weak. I'm not the biggest fan of Burn After Reading, but it's still like pretty it. good. And yeah. I think Hail, Hail Caesar is a little weak. But I liked Hail Caesar fine. I think did I? Here's the thing. I don't. Re- <laughs> In my head, if someone said, "Hey, did you like Hail Caesar?" I'd be like, "Yep," but then I, I probably would go back and listen to my the podcast and maybe I don't I... remember whether you liked it or not. I remember my opinion, which was that I liked it fine enough, but I think it's lesser. Is this is that more of an indictment against a piece of media that I don't actually remember my opinion? Because if I no, felt passionately no. about it, because that's more about you than it is about the media. It's about how the media affected me. Yeah. So but... is it is it <laughs> is it effective? No, I, I still contain that, that that's more about you specifically. Not you personally, but I mean like the individual. The individual, because you may not remember a movie because you were in the, uh, the wrong frame of mind when you watched it. You may not remember a movie because you had a bad experience at the theater. You may not remember a movie because, because you were you know in a bad mood at that time. I, for example- But I do I, remember the movie. I like, just don't um, remember how I felt about it. Like there's a movie called Autofocus, uh, a Paul Schrader movie. By the way, yeah, we're going to talk about Paul Schrader in a second. Uh, maybe at the end of this podcast. Um, but there's a <laughs> there's a Paul Schrader movie called Autofocus, which I watched when I was kind of in a bad time in my life. And I didn't like that movie, but I very vividly remember it because of my experience in that movie. Right. Um, so I think it has more to do with you than the movie. So what I'm saying, everybody, go back, listen to our Hail Caesar review, and then let me know <laughs> how I liked it. Or I th- I think you I think I kind of like this. It. Is the, this is the thing with the Coen Brothers as well. Is like even I think their weakest movie, Intolerable Cruelty, um, I think is still pretty great. Yeah, you know sure. what I mean. Like on a scale, that, that's how good I think they are. And 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 yeah, they're, they're in my mind just phenomenal. Like a film like A Serious Man, I think is a masterwork. Inside Lewin Davis is a masterwork. Right, right. Okay, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Okay, now we've done the Coen Brothers. Just so we can sort of sit ourselves up in genres, the unusual thing about the Coen Brothers uh, about the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is it is an anthology film, um, which is something we haven't done any anthology. We've done a couple of short films on this sure. episode, uh, but um, but we have never done an anthology film. So, no, and I think that that presents a tricky proposition in terms of how to review it as a film. Um, but I think this is the you know it's a tricky proposition, but I think one will get through. Well, we we review it as a film because it's presented to us as such. It's right. not something like say that we that we have gathered together to one cohesive uh, piece, such as the Overwatch shorts. Yeah, like those are. Oh, indiv- we did do those yeah, individually, is- but that, I wouldn't even call that an anthology film. Those are short films that just go in a group. It's only an anthology when you package them together. Right. Uh, those are meant to be ingested, uh, you know, as YouTube videos. Right. Um, so when you have six disparate stories, um, with the, really the through line of them being just that they're set in the old West, um, 
it's definitely interesting. I did not know it was an anthology going into it. Right. I saw that it was six chapters, and I loved the book, and I, I loved the sort of framework of the book and the and the really nice image. I do remember my grandfather having old books where the where the pictures, the color photos, had that piece of uh, almost like parchment, like real thin paper yeah. over it. Yeah. Um, and I liked. I, I had a lot of good time. I actually paused and like read the yeah. book yeah, on yeah. the thing. So I was just curious how the novelization of the beginning scene and the end scene worked out. And they were always very, very good. I think it's actually really important to do that because, in a way, in this film, the reading that material kind of gives you a clue of how to read the film. Because they they always a little put, bit by the end. Yeah, 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 they, yeah. They put kind of like the key lines in uh, in that story. They'll show you the key lines, kind of to. Maybe just to frame what you're thinking about doing right. these films. Because they are, I would say, these stories are a little oblique, a little abstract in some way. They're, they they kind of, and, and I think the, this film kind of forces you to do a little bit of the legwork to, to figure out how to connect these stories. So, agreed. Here's the, now I'm going to do a, a, a seesaw of praise and, mm. and, and ire. One of the Kroll seesaws. I'm, I'm one on of the classic Kroll seesaw yeah, of I'm, praise and ire. I'm sitting on the other side. We're bouncing up and down. Okay, here we go. go. So praise-wise, uh, first thoughts, I really loved the look and the feel of all of these. I think that they were done incredibly well, each with sort of their own vis- like visual style to them. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing like crazy, crazy, with maybe the exception of the last one in certain spots. Mm-hmm. Um so I was instantly drawn in by the look of the film. This is their first digital film, by the way. It looks beautiful. It's extraordinary looking, right? Um, and then uh, now to, to, to jump up on the seesaw to bring me back down. Um, All right, I'm about to get hoisted <clears throat> up, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, Thinking back to them <laughs> while watching it, I only really enjoy, like, if I had to weigh what I was experiencing during them, I really only consistently enjoyed maybe two or three of them. Okay. I'm, I'm falling off the seesaw here. That's okay, but now we're going to go back up the other way, okay? okay. All right, we're coming um, back up. But I think, and I was excited to do this podcast after watching it, that they are much more fun to discuss than to watch. Hmm. And there's because because even though some of them didn't connect with me emotionally or, or resonate with my, uh, keeping my like my my full like uh, un undivided attention right it I, I while watching it I was like oh these are going to be great to talk about yeah um, so that's kind of my back and forth on all of these um, I am glad because I didn't know it was an anthology. And when I was first watching the first chapter, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I was like, this is super fun, but it fi- it felt to me like a Western Deadpool musical that I just was, I was like, is it going to be two hours of this? <laughs> and I was like, thank God it's not two hours of this. It was delightful in the, in the, in the little bit that it was. Yeah. But uh, I, I was just thinking about that and I was like, oh man, I don't know. If, I don't know if I could do it. But that's, I don't know. What about you? First thoughts, uh, I mean, the anthology film. Let's roll. Okay, anthology films. I, I, uh, so I, I make short films and I've been to lots of short film screenings. And I find compiling, like there's a real art to like compiling short films together. And I think like um, people who curate short films, for example, it is, a, it is actually a much more difficult art than most people think it is. It's not just the case of like slapping films together. Because what I find when I watch anthology films, short films in a sequence like that is I get really exhausted. Yeah. Like, I think like 
an hour of short films is much more exhausting than an hour of, or than two hours of feature film. Because the setup, right? Like, yeah. you're, you're, when you're watching a film, you have the, the first maybe half hour, 45 minutes, where you're getting most of the setup. And then, like, you've, you've subconsciously locked into what's going yeah. on. And then you can go for the ride. Whereas each, if it's a short film, yeah. reset, you got, you reset, 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 reset. And I find, you know, I, I've been to a lot of short film screenings where it's like, there's only one or two I've ever been to where it's like, oh, this was programmed really well so that there was like an arc to the, yeah. to the overall short films. Uh, so I find that very, very difficult. And then, you know, like in terms of anthology films, I've seen, you know, most notably, uh, I watched one at the start of this year called uh, Three Cases of Murder, which was from 1955, which is like Murder. A, uh, a ghost story sort of anthology films I, re I really liked. And the other one that comes to mind is Four Rooms, the Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez yes. um, anthology set in a hotel. But so so I kind of had trepidation about watching this because of that. I was okay. like, ah, uh, I don't know if I can, you know, sit through this. But the th there's something about again what the Cohen brothers do and watching this where I was delighted from beginning to end, and I was completely compelled in almost every single story. Um, I I I've watched this twice since, you know, and like twice, you watched it twice. I watched the it whole thing twice. The whole thing twice, and in. Uh, as a form of pleasure, not because I we were doing this podcast. I was like, oh, I want to watch that right away. You just wanted to make it clear you weren't doing your job better than you should. Yeah. You just did it because it was fun. Just total like for fun. Right. I would like. That's I was sweet. like. I was like. I I could watch it. again. Obviously, it's more accessible. Like I would have watched Widows twice if I could. If it was a, yeah. But uh, but this is so much more accessible. <laughs> I I I love this thing from start to finish. I, um, like. Uh, unabashedly and there's something i just want to put this out there i don't think you're going to find a lot of uh combat for me in that regard yeah. because i'm like i'm psyched that you loved it all and yeah. that's that's where it's a complicated spot where i'm coming from because even though it's things didn't connect with me like it's something that i would still champion for others to connect with Obvious. yeah it's you know and and the the thing that's really interesting about the coen brothers um, and, and I, I kind of, I was so taken by this movie. I tweeted about it as soon as I, um, as soon as I watched it. And I, I went, my tweet was something along the lines of, um, the world is unknowable and unforgiving, but it sure is, it sure is beautiful. Mm. And I think that was like kind of the way I felt about the Ballad of Buster Scruggs because a lot of the stories in this in this film do that thing, which is that they abruptly end or they end on a note which is. Uh, not purposely unsatisfying, but often the opposite of where you think a story yep. like that would end, especially some of these which have really long sit-ups. Um, but I think I found that 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 is something a the Coen Brothers do really well. Look at you know oh, yeah. a serious man, True Grit. Uh, not True True Grit is kind of their most wholesome of films, uh, but No Country for Old Men certainly, um, where they they're able to be somewhat obtuse and somewhat abstract by the conclusion, mm -hmm. but still make you feel satisfied by the conclusion. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a remarkable tenet. And I think there's there's also this thing about the Coen brothers, which is that they are deeply... They have this like unusual mix of fatalism and nihilism, which is that they believe that there is an order to the world, and then that order means nothing. You know, like, there's no way of knowing how the order works. And I think that's true of, like... that. That is, like, a concrete... Uh, thread through all of their films that I kind of take joy in and I find kind of surprisingly elegant and beautiful. And so it's because they're able to weave that through stories that I think is really extraordinary. I'm on board with that whole line of thinking. Like, I love the fact, like, I, I call it the, the circle of fear. 
Yeah. So, uh, for instance, here we are at the be- at the top of the circle. I'm making a thing with my hand, and then we have a problem, and like, oh, let's say like life is hard because we don't quite understand how it goes, and we're moving around the circle, and it's like, oh, well, then we get this big problem, and we can't really do anything about it. We don't understand, but at the same time, as we go- reach around the second half of the 180 degrees, it's like, well, this problem is so esoteric and so big, and none of us really matter anyway. So how can I be scared of something that is so inevitably out of my reach? Yeah. So it's like it's it's a it's a beautiful I totally get that and that is a thread that I've seen in in all of their films that I've I've experienced and in this one it's like that but like in in like a burrito bullet form it's yeah. like real small and like compact and you're like bam but but the thing is watching the film a couple of times you do see that there is a real narrative thread that connects all of these stories together and I think it is that sort of sense of fatalism I'm going to call it, and this is just my own sort of verbiage around it, but fatalism and nihilism mixed with an appreciation that despite that, the world is kind of beautiful. Fatalism. <laughs> Fanatalism. Fanatal. Aesthetic, fina- aesthetic finalism. Yeah. That's what I'll call yeah. it. Yeah, aesthetic, aesthetic finalism. That's what we're going to coin. Suck it, Webster. <laughs> um, so I, you know, and and so without getting into specific spoilers, I think... There was this extraordinary sense where I was, instead of like being exhausted by the fact that, you know, like a story finished and then we're going to start on another one, I was excited when a story finished and it was like, oh, we're on to another one now. And I found every single story was so compelling. Um, just briefly, what was your favorite and least favorite story? Oh, uh, I think my... Actually, actually, can you list out the stories for us just so we know where Sure. We're so there's six of them. Yeah. Uh, the first is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. The second is... I, I'm going to mess this one up. Near Andalones? Near Al... Al- Algonas? Algonas. Yeah, near Algonas. Yeah. There we go. Uh, third is Meal Ticket. Fourth is All Gold's Canyon. Yeah. Uh, fourth... Or, I'm sorry. That was the fourth one. Fifth one is The Gal Who Got Rattled. And the sixth one is The Mortal Remains. Yeah. So which was your so and and so obviously the battle of Buster Scruggs is got Tim Blake Nelson as Buster Scruggs this sort of singing cartoonish I wouldn't have called it Deadpool I would have called it more like a Looney Tunes character um, sitting in the old west he, kinda, think, he but, felt like Bugs Bunny in the old west but to me. here's the deal Deadpool is just Bugs Bunny with gratuitous violence that's right. it that's what Deadpool is I'm just gonna say I think for the Coen Brothers they might know Looney Tunes better than they know Deadpool but it's based <laughs> off the same sh- it's it that word semantics okay um, uh, my favorite one was All Gold's Canyon. That is with Tom Waits. Yeah. Just delightful. Oh, so, so good. good. That was like a fucking meal in a glass. And then uh, my least favorite was probably near uh, Aldaga, Algona, Aldone, Aldago, Aldago, Aldagonas. Yeah. Near Aldagonas. Okay. I think my favorite when I watched it was The Girl Who Got Rattled. And my least favorite was The Mortal Remains. Um, the girl who the girl who got rattled is kind of has got the most meat to chew on for me. There's there's the most story and the most to kind of like get invested in character wise. But I love the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I love Neil Degonis. I love Meal Ticket. Meal Ticket the second time around was kind of my favorite the second okay. time around. Uh, Old Gold's Old Gold's Canyon I think is is truly wonderful. Yeah. My least favorite was the Mortal Remains. I found the Mortal Remains was kind of like. It's it's great, but it was like the hardest one to kind of like connect to in a narrative sense. Not just because it's abstract what's going on, but also it is kind of like the punctuation mark on this, and it is the 
the most abstract punctuation mark you can have for a film like this. The Mortal Remains would be my edgelord 16-year-old self's favorite of these six. Right. Okay. Okay, uh, I can see that. But it is not currently. The the other thing that I've seen as a criticism of this film is like the amount of cruelty, like like Wither deciphering the film's abstractness and its obtuseness as cruelty. Um, you know, like Wither, that sort of sense of fatalism and nihilism is cruel because a lot of characters whom to whom we get attached to in this film ultimately uh, meet cruel, what would be determined as cruel endings for them. As and, opposed to real life? Like, doesn't that just happen? Like, that's what life is. Well, as opposed to, say, movies, you know. Which, right, you this know, has a much, yeah. This has a much crueler outlook on the world and a much more... Realistic in a weird way. Well, much more narratively unsatisfying yeah. uh, twist to them. But but th there's this extraordinary thing, which is, I think, the, the Coens kind of craft this world so lovingly, so beautifully, so with such an attention to detail and nuance and, and uh, you know, the peculiarities of this world. I love, like, you know, like um, Pacha, uh, Panshot, you know, in, uh, in Nier Aldeones, the, the Stephen Root character running around yep. with, like, pans and he gets shot with pans. I just... I, I, I just I can't describe how much I love Stephen Root in Coen Brothers films, but yeah. him like running at uh, James Franco, shouting "pan shot," just really just something about that just really works for me. Um, there's something about the way they paint this picture, which is which is to say that despite them being somewhat fatalistic and nihilistic in their outlook, their films don't ever feel that way. Not in the way that like, for example. Zack Snyder's films make you feel like the world is a shitty place. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and like shitty in a bad way. And while, while showing you fantastic things. Yeah, but like you but kind you of- But you feel like garbage. You feel like garbage watching those movies. I don't feel like garbage watching any Coen Brothers movie. I right. feel, I feel uh, exhilarated watching the movies. And that's despite the fact that you walk, walk out of them. Like for example, in a, uh, a film like Burn After Reading, where the, the whole film goes, what do we learn from this? And, you, and they're like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. And you're like- and you walk out going, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And that, and like, and you're kind of like, well, there's an honesty to that, yeah. right? Like anyone who says they've got everything all figured out is lying. I mean, you might have a really great idea that you're 99.9% .9 sure about a thing, but in the end, you, you know, nothing really matters, Lincoln Park. <laughs> um, so, so also okay. Metallica, nothing really. No, that's nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Yeah. Apologies. Um, so apologies, anthologies. Um, <laughs> Let's let's just do like a a, a, a a sort of spoiler speed round to a point because there's six there's six films each of these honestly we could have discussed for roughly a full hour to make the conversation kind of a little bit more pointed. Let's the thing I kind of want to get at is how do we connect this film to a greater sense of what the entire experience good, is about. Good, 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 good. So I think what, what we have to sort of decide is important after we sort of discuss each film very yeah. briefly would be then what is what is the what is that particular film trying to say? And then at the end, how does all of that tie together as one cohesive package? Right. So Ballad of Buster Scruggs, oh, number God. one. Tim Blake Nelson. So fun. So great. So fun, but it was, again, it was like a sugar rush. Yeah. Like, I, I was like, this is great. He's a cartoon. Mm. I can't take two hours of this cartoon. And I didn't at that mm -hmm. point know that this was an anthology. I thought this was going to be like, he's going to keep turning up or like something, and then we're going to go to heaven. Like, there's how, a. How, how can you. Can I ask, like. Yeah. If this was the Deadpool, but you find Deadpool a little bit easier to take Deadpool, for two hours? Deadpool has, and I've said this in both reviews of, of Deadpool 1 and Deadpool yeah. 2, Deadpool does a really smart thing 
where it doesn't, especially the first one, where it knows when to limit your Deadpoolness. Okay. And this was just this character, Buster Scruggs, like in your face, twenty four seven. I I agree that like if they did a full version of yeah. this, they would pace it out slightly differently. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I I I think I just found this whole intro so very fun and so. He's such a great character to open up with. You know, he's a narrator. He's talking to the audience. I love his line because I... Oh, no, no. Okay, let's say what we think this particular sequence is about. Sure. Um, Uh, You go first. So to me, this is about... Like, okay, the meta-narrative to me is kind of about how great the Coen brothers are. I don't think they intended (laughs) it to be, but there's this thing with Buster Scruggs. It's just the way I viewed it because I'm so jealous of how good they are. (laughs) But Buster Scruggs is this, like, walking swagger, you know, like, all polished up in a gritty world... And he's untouchable because he's so good at what he does. But he's also a huge dork. He's a huge, but I but, mean, as a viewer, I love him. No, no, of course. <laughs> this is what I'm saying, though, and that's interesting. You're sort of equating that to the to the brothers themselves because <laughs> no matter how you, I'm a fan of the huge dork as almost um, godlike narrator. Powerful yeah. presence. Uh, again, for, for lack of a better thing, I, I keep going back to the Deadpool reference. Deadpool's a dork. He uses outdated references from 20 years ago. In this case, this guy is a super clean cut dude who has all of his stuff together and he's walking around in his big white suit and his white hat and he's like going to make sure he's using big words and making sure everyone's confused. And then after he literally kills a man by shooting him in the face with his own gun four times. Clancy Brown, RIP. He gets he gets up and does a musical number on the bar and the entire saloon sings along. How can you not love that? Yeah. Uh, but he's a huge dork. I I uh, I love him. Um, I love him so much. Um, and and the thing the thing that is really important to me. So I love this idea that he is so he's untouchable in what he does. Sure. Like he he. He is a criminal. He is a he's sort of a scallywag, you know, like a cheer, almost like a pirate in a way, you know, like that sort of lovable rogue kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. But he's so good that that the concept of uh, of impending death doesn't approach him in any way. Like he is just he's never going to get shot until it does. Yep. And it does so and there's an acceptance of it which is really interesting because someone comes along who's just as good as him. And it's this moment of realization that your time is just up. Yeah. You know, like no matter how good you are, there is some situations where your time is just up. And I've, you know, I pray it never happens to the Coen brothers, but I was like, I wondered about this sort of, this sense of like feeling like they're, they're on, you know, they're untouchable. I don't think they do this themselves consciously, but I just kind of watch this way. Cause I watch them and go, it's unfair how good you are at what you do. And and then, you know, like to have the sense and, and then the thing that, that he sort of that's really interesting about this film is that he gets, you know, like at the very beginning of the film, he gets called a misanthrope or he has a poster that calls him a misanthrope. And he says, a misanthrope, I don't hate my fellow man, even when they're surly and tired and they're cheating at poker. I just figured that's the human condition. Uh, and, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting, you know, like sort of viewpoint. Yeah. And at the end of the film at the end of the film when he's floating into spe- into heaven, which again, delightful sequence. Um, <laughs> he kind of says, "I hope that I can go to a better place now with not as many cruel people, with not as many terrible people." And you kind of get the sense that like, "Oh, he's kind of a product of the world he lives in." You know, he is he is probably the most cruel person, but he lives in an incredibly cruel world where people are willing to pull a gun on him on a- at any second. And and there was something about this sort of sense that the world is unforgiving 
and you just have to have a cheery disposition when your time is up. And, and I kind of, a cheery acceptance of when your time is up, even though he didn't see it coming. Sure. I, I, I think I buy into point one of yours more so than that last one. I think uh, that what, what, what landed for me was the idea that there's always someone better and that your time will be, it will come no, matter, will come, no yeah. matter how good you are. And you'll probably not see it coming entirely because you'll be so good at what you do. Yeah. Um, every one of us, no matter what we are the best at, uh, will always have someone eventually better because guess what? Even if it's not in your lifetime, you're all going to die. Yeah. So that just means that there's always going to be someone better somewhere yeah um so so would you say then the theme of this first one is is uh what what in a sentence i would say it is uh knowing that there's someone always better i think that there's i think it's an acceptance that your time will come i i I feel like there's an acceptance that there that there is a finite time to what for everybody for everybody okay and and that's odd because it's basically saying death happens to everyone which is true of all of these films but look it, but but think about how much you don't think about that just because in in the in our scope of our of our piddly singular human existence like all the problems like that this country is having right now or even all of the problems that the world various countries over the over the course of human history like they've all seemed as dire as this yeah but in the the rearview mirror of history it's going to be a blip like there's all like yeah it's yeah. The, the sort of excessive, the, the, the hubris of this character kind of become... It, it's, the the hubris is, of us all. It's not his downfall, though. Like, it's not... Be, I mean, he, it's not because he's overly... It like, is, but the, down, the downfall is not the point. The point is that everyone will have a downfall. Yeah, everyone will. You never get his sense, specific one isn't. You don't feel like he caused his own death. It's just like death is coming for everyone, yeah. no matter where, where it comes from anyway. Which I think is true for the next story. Yes. Uh, near you and, pronounce it. Near and... And Andalgans? Andalg- I don't know. Aldegones. Aldegones. Near yeah. Aldegones. That's. I think that's actually. That's probably accurate. it. It took us nine times, but we did it. And so the 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 current the 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 narrative here is James Franco is a sort of somewhat inept bank robber. He tries to rob uh, Stephen Root's teller, who um, has a bank in the middle of nowhere. Bank in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I thought it was happened. funny. Yeah, yeah. And um and, and eventually gets uh gets caught. And is uh, tried in a sort of makeshift jury, but survives because fate intervenes and a a Native American tribe attacks his would-be executioners, leaving him stranded on his horse, only to be rescued by a cattle rustler. Then... He is uh, the cattle rustler <laughs> <laughs> dies, and he is again uh, taken in for execution. Uh, and to which he replies, you know, to, to, he sees another person next to him who's like Crying. weeping, and he's like first time, the, yeah, uh, the gallows. And, and I think he has this sort of sense that like, oh, I've escaped death kind of three times now in this film, or in in the course of this narrative, and that will continue to happen. But the cruel, you know, the, that sort of question of cruelty here is that he. He sees at the moment of his death, and I don't know if this is a commentary on death or just a commentary on hubris or his life or, or the narrative, is he sees at the moment of his death, there's a pretty lady. And I think for a second, perhaps, he imagines a life where this is not happening. And as soon as he does, the mask is put and he is, and he is executed. He is hung. He is hung to death. And I think that is that, that perhaps that might be, that and the next story are probably where that sort of... Um, that tenor of like, is this a cruel film kind of comes in. And I, I don't think they are cruel films. I think they're very interesting ideas for film. This is the one I didn't know what it was saying. Right. 
uh, because you know, it, it, could could it be that no matter what, your comeuppance always does come? I think because of that girl moment at the end, I don't think that's the point. But that's kind of the through line of the piece. Because no matter what he did, he's still going to kind of pay the same price for the original thing he was doing wrong. The uh, the irony is is that the thing that he gets hung for is something that he didn't do. But he's still getting the same treatment for the thing that he did do in a cosmic sense, but not yes. in a you know literal sense. That's and why it, I sort of meant like come up, it's always comes. But then the girl at the end threw me. So there's a thing with... The, so this is probably the one film where I think, like, structurally, this is this one's missing a beat. Like, if this had one more beat of him kind of escaping and then kind of... And then meeting his fate after be You know, because it all seems like it happens a little too quickly. Right. Um, but I still didn't mind that. I'm just saying that, like, I think, you know, like, if this, if this particular story expanded out by one, one more sort of escape for him, sure, sure, sure. then the point would be made explicit. But I think there's just something in that moment where he kind of, you know, when he says first time to the to the yeah. other guy, he's basically saying, oh, you know, so far the fate of the winds has kind of got me out of this scenario, as you know, like as often as it can. I did not get that read from it. I think exactly what you said, though, if it, if it, if it did have one more beat, if he got away from death a third time, because he really doesn't get away from he doesn't get away from death the first time. He just gets knocked unconscious. Yeah, but but like he's about to be hung and fates. Well, no, okay. The first time he's being shot at, yeah, and he and he lives. The second time he's being he's about to be hung and he lives. And then the third time he is about, about to be hung, hung but I think it's because it's two hangings and a shooting that yeah, kind of has yeah. a disparate feel to it. I get that as well, but like, so there's something about the. I just think there's something beautiful and poetic about that last look when he sees this beautiful woman. And I think he's like, and he says, there's a pretty girl. And I think suddenly his attention is drawn to another possibility other than escape. And yet at that moment, that is when death comes for him. And it's sort of an unusual, this is a unusual moment because it, it kind of implicates that, that, you know, again, kind of like Buster Scruggs, death comes for us all. But is this, is this death will come for you when, when uh, death will surprise you? Because this is, this is a guy who's not surprised by him getting every time or whatever. He's like, he's literally being kind of humdrum about it. Yeah. But then a moment of surprise, him actually seeing this girl, maybe envisioning a thing, et cetera, et cetera, uh, happens. And then death comes after he sees something unexpected. I think, it, I, you know, like there's theories of death that I've written and the one, there's, there's lots of different theories of death and, and there's this one idea that I've, I read somewhere about the idea that your life crystallizes at the moment of death, you know, like so everything is completely confusing to you until the point of death, you know, like and, and, and whatever the meaning is, is, is clear to you at that moment. That sounds like the, the, uh, the, the attempted comforting words of a terrified being. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, like death is terrifying. But, but you know, like there's a story of like Steve Jobs at the end of his, at, at his deathbed, the last moment, sort of looking up into the sky saying, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, where's is he sort of discovered this wonder? I think Steve Jobs planned that. Yeah, he, goes, <laughs> he goes, oh, wow, oh, wow, the iPod Touch is really going to go. Oh, wow, oh, wow, Apple's innovation ends with me yeah um so i think like him seeing that woman kind of to me points to this idea that there is beauty in the world that he hadn't considered before and he considers it too late um and it it does ring familiar to buster scruggs because when he sees the man in black he's kind of for the first time ever there's a sense of fear in him you know like he looks at the man in black who's singing just like he does and he realizes oh this guy's really good you know like this guy maybe 
uh, maybe up to par me. You know, like he kind of recognizes something in this other person that he hasn't reckoned. You know, he just looks at everyone yeah. as buffoons until this final moment. So I think that that is a connecting thread with this one. Well, I think, honestly, the first three have a strong connecting thread that we've been talking about. Well, it's all death. It's all <laughs> yeah, death but it's, all the time. But it's also that there's always something better and that something will always get you and you will always be replaced. That is sort of the, the third <laughs> film we could get into if we're, if yeah, we're ready yeah, for yeah. it, um, is Meal Ticket. So, oh. In, uh, Liam, I punch wolves with baby bottles. Neeson, uh, and who's the um, other actor? It's uh, it's Harry. Uh, he's a uh, um, uh, uh, Harry Potter uh, actor, but uh, his name is Will. Oh, where did I have it? I had it written down. I apologize, listeners. I had this written down somewhere. And, Willie and Watson. Harry Melling. Oh. Harry Melling, uh, who is a, a, a Harry Potter favorite. Uh, and so it, all our listeners who are like Harry Potter fans will be like, wow, how did you not know that? <laughs> um, he, so, so the story here is, uh, is he is um, a, par- a quadriplegic, I yeah. guess is what you yep. call it. Well, but, yep, is that's that, four. Yeah, all, all, four go- all four limbs gone. And he is basically this amazing orator yep. who, can, who recites both Poetry, biblical tales, and the um, Gettysburg and, and Address, the Gettysburg Address. Um, and he does so for the sort of entertainment of uh, of every town that his uh, his keeper takes him into. Liam Neeson, and Liam Neeson, who's the impresario. Um, and what happens is slowly his audience begins to dwindle. Now, what what's interesting is that we, the audience, recognize him as sort of a wonderful gift to the world like his ability to kind of command audiences his his talent seems extraordinary to us and it seems extraordinary um perhaps in spite of or perhaps because of his his uh, his quadriplegic uh you know his body which mm-hmm. is unable to control he has no control over his fate but he has this gift that he continues to offer mm-hmm. and slowly over the course of the film both Liam Neeson and the public to whom he kind of presents this gift to starts dwindling away. Liam Neeson starts recognizing that people aren't as interested in him as they once were and and gets completely hoodwinked into buying a chicken who can perform this sort of like magic counting uh, trick, which we, I think, established was kind of just a trick of uh, by um, the bell, the bell. Yeah, basically telling the chicken where to knock the bell kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that. Uh, I, I'm not sure if Neeson know, like Neeson's character knows that or whether he's just duped into buying the chicken. Um, either way, he eventually makes the decision to rid himself uh, kind of almost in the sort of capitalistic sense, you know, just like yep. ridding himself of his asset um, of uh, the artist. When a hot new commodity. <laughs> yeah, a chicken. chicken. Um, and this is what I think this has got one of my favorite moments in the film, which is that when after Neeson, after the impresario has kind of like gone to the bridge and thrown the rock off the off the cliff to kind of see how deep the water is and where you know where he's gonna like kill him, yeah, he walks back and there's this shot and he's walking back and you can just see him thinking and he looks up and he sees the um, the artist who's kind of in our point of view and he just gives this like weak smile that's like he's just like. Huh. You know, as though like, well, today's not your lucky day, buddy. You know, yeah. like it's got it's this, this incredibly terrifying, and it, it was like literally my favorite moment of the entire thing when he just looks up, glances, gives this weak smile, and then the 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 video, the film fades to black. Yeah. Um, the theme is the world will replace you. Yeah, and I think that's true of this one as well. Like, and it's unfortunate the world will replace him, but it's also the interesting thing here is that. 
the value of art decreases over time. But that's okay. So there's something the the, the diminishing of the worlds is yeah. something that is uh, a literary trope for as far back as you can as you can remember. Yeah. Even even in the way that like uh, mythology is built, like in or biblical times, mm-hmm. like what when Methuselah had uh, nine hundred and sixty nine years or something of life, and within a generation, yeah. uh, people were down to our lifespan. If you look at the way the, that the Garden the, of the, Eden to where we are now, the, go- yeah. the gods yeah. versus the Titans into the like there's and even you know you go into Lord of the Rings or stuff like that like the old guard had all of this world of myth and magic and it's all sort of faded from the world the elves are leaving etc etc that's a theme that's in everything and in this particular piece I mean we are literally losing a beautiful orator yeah uh, based on public opinion and cost effectiveness for a fucking chicken for, and 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 that is something that is it's an incredibly capitalist view it's the way our world is sort of working craftsmanship is no longer really a commodity it is now how easy and how quick I can get the thing no matter how good that thing is yeah so in this sense with um, the the orator is being replaced with a chicken because at the end of the day for the businessman uh, Liam Neeson he will make the same if not more profits yeah and there's something beautiful that's being lost from the world yeah and it's and and i guess the thing that's interesting there you know trying to connect the theme of of this particular film to the other two is the idea that that even though death comes for us all something can be lost in that period it's not it's in a weird way this is it's not the most hopeful of the films because i think the next one is the most hopeful film but this is one where the the sense that the that there is something to be lost by the way the world operates. Like in the other ones, there's yeah. this there's a sort of nihilism about it, which is that, well, this is just the way it works. We don't really understand it, but you know, that's the order of the world. This one is like the order of the world is slightly tragic. Mm-hmm. Um and slightly well not slightly, I mean for for the yeah. artist's sake, it is it is, you know, th- there's something the thing I found heartbreaking is the is the kind of visual and narrative impotence that character has to affect his fate. You know, yeah. he just can't do anything. All he can do is his is his art. And you know, like he is basically at the behest of the impresario and people around him. And there's nothing he can do to 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 stop, you know, like him being thrown off. Yeah. Um so there is something tragic about this one that I kind of I, again I loved. This yeah. the second time around that again that really smile. Hooked. Yeah. Oh yeah. So good. Uh all gold's canyon. Oh, Tom uh, Waits and beautiful CG creatures. Beautiful CG creatures. Yeah, well, like, the owl wasn't CG, but the but the, the buck was. The deer, I believe, is, and also this this location. Ah, oh, that my. couldn't have been real. It. Uh, so I listened to a podcast where they talked to the VFX team, who is the same VFX team who did um, uh, Billy Ling's long halftime work, which we interviewed yes. um, uh, many episodes ago. It's the same uh, uh, visual effects team, East Side Effects, Alex Limke, um, and they talked about basically that location. Is that location? They added. What? They added some mountains in the background, but that is that location, okay. and it is. You're like, well, this kind of looks like heaven. Yeah, I think this is like what I imagine heaven to look like. Um, and I never knew how prospecting worked. It's incredible, right? I love that the details of this one. And, and, and now I know. And this is I don't even want to spoil what it is. When you watch this, you'll no, see. Spoilers. I know, but no, but I think it's a fun thing to even discover. Like we can tell what happens in the tale, but how prospecting works yeah. is fascinating. I was like, yeah, they put pans in the river. Like that's how they figure it out. But I was like, that doesn't really make sense. No, and this idea that he's like continuously like evaluating the level of sediment until he kind of narrows in yeah. to Mr. Pockets, yeah. where the pocket of gold the pocket is. Of gold is. Um, so this older gentleman goes and does that, and he finds it, and then someone comes to try to replace him. Yeah, shoots him in the back, you skunk. And then... <laughs> 
he 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 outwits him. Yeah. Now the thing that I think is interesting in this tale, um, that is unique, is the adherence to the laws of nature, and what happens in this film that I think that that you have to pay attention to is the book ending of nature kind of flourishing and then departing when man comes into it. So yep. at the beginning you see like fish kind of going downstream, butterflies, you know, there the buck uh, and, and as, yeah, as soon as the prospector come in they all leave. They all leave. They all kind of make their way out of there. And then there's this sort of wonderful scene in the middle of it where he's caught a fish, he climbs up a tree and he see and he finds an owl's nest. Yep. And he looks over to the best performance by an owl I've ever seen. Yeah. This angry owl looking yep. at him and he's like he's trying to take the eggs out of the basket and he sees the owl you know glaring at him and he's like all right fine and he puts the eggs back but then he goes maybe just one and yeah. he takes one yeah and i i kind of equate this to like the balance of nature you know like it, it, like if there's any force to the world that is um exemplary of divine providence it's the indifference of nature to human beings sure right and and one thing that this character kind of demonstrates is sort of some respect for nature in that moment but the little bit where he takes the egg i think is kind of the the payback is being shot at you know like and again i'm talking sort of like not narratively but sort of cosmically in terms yeah. of like how this universe works so this is interesting because so this is the only one i would consider hopeful yeah i think it is hopeful um like but the only reason that it is allowed to be here and to be as hopeful as it is is these nature points because yeah. so as it goes the person comes shoots him in the back but then he gets the better of them and actually gets away with the gold yeah, Mr. Pocket. Mr. Pocket. Um, but but that's not the end. The end is when nature comes back and yeah. the fish come back and the butterflies come back and the owl is like later and the mm -hmm. buck comes back. Yeah. Right? This is what I think this one is trying to say. And that is win or lose, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It and in the grand scheme of everything. Yeah. Who no? The universe does not give a shit. Yeah, nature is indifferent to our suffering and yeah. to our and to our success. Um, and I think that again ties into like the continuing theme of what does death mean in in the grand scheme of things? You know, like what does death mean to us all? Yeah, and it's it sort of because oddly. Tom Waits's character is the character you expect to die. Yeah, the most. You know, like you expect that, and when he does get shot, and you kind, you know, it's a, again a lot of blood. Well, it's also like this wonderful thing that the Coens can do, which is like they just they soak in that moment for like yeah. a good five. It feels like five minutes. I'm sure it's like I mean one or two, but it feels like forever. And then he gets the better of yeah. it. You know, and yeah, you kind of expect him to die. So the again they're sort of defying that expectation. But like you said, the most important thing here is nature returns as soon as he's gone. Yeah, and this sort of battle between him and this man in black, the second man in black we've seen. Yep. Um, you know, doesn't matter ultimately. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then we move into the gal who got rattled. Now, this is my favorite story. This one I liked. Uh, I can't put my finger on it, but maybe at this point I was getting that bit of anthology fatigue. I felt like it went on too long. But I, I would then upon reflecting on it, right, I was like, well, what would I cut out? And I was like, nothing really. So, like, I don't know. This is this is the longest one, and I think this is that sort of amazing job of like story curation where they've kind of they've they've done this thing where they've kind of done a really quick story, another really quick story, a slightly a 
you know, three really quick stories and then a slight long and then a long one. It's they're the, kind of like they're playing with our expectations. They're playing us like piano. It's the proper way to do it. I 100% agree. So this story is basically a brother and a sister are moving out west on the Oregon Trail. Yeah. God, you know, no one died of typhus or diarrhea the entire time. At least we didn't see it. Um, <laughs> well, no, the first character died of, we don't know what oh, disease. Oh, maybe it was diarrhea. I think it was probably typhus because he had a cough and they're talking about it at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Anyway, brother and sister go with hopes of him marrying his sister off in like a weird business deal, but he's not a good businessman. And then he gets sick on the trail and dies. She can't pay the, um, the, the boy who was helping sort of move all of their things. She goes to the wagon guards, an older yeah. gentleman and a younger gentleman. And go to the younger one, and they basically work out. They were trying to figure out a thing, and it's it's the older guy trying, or sorry, the younger uh, protector of the wagon trade, sort of working out like how yeah. how you know how to help her. And then he kind of realizes over the course of the the trip that he's kind of fallen for, and he's like, well, you know, he's, he's in. This sounds creepy, but he doesn't do it in a creepy way. He's like, well, I could marry you, and then I could pay the debt for you. I think the thing that I I, I got a. In terms of that sort of creepiness, non-creepiness kind of thing, I the thing that I got out of this was how difficult it was for the pilgrims to kind of, you know, to, to move from one, you know, to do the Oregon Trail for sure. one. Not, also, the, not the pilgrims, not the but pilgrim. I guess they were on a pilgrimage, the prospect, so technically, whatever, whatever, whatever. technically they are. Whatever they were called, my American history is terrible. But the sense that how difficult, how, how difficult relationships were in that period and how difficult life was in that period to the point where forming relationships was really transactional. Like she is about to be married. You know, they're going to go on this long journey because he's, he's basically offering her up as some sort of dowry for an exchange for a business opportunity. Sure. Um, and life is kind of, you know, like they, they basically decide, you know, like every decision on the trail has to do with life or death. Like for example, the dog is annoying people. So they're like, well, we're, you know, president peaches, what is it? President President, uh, oh, it's a P. Yeah, President Peaches. I no, it not I, Peaches. I wrote it it's a President Pierce. Pierce. President Pierce is like lit out to like be killed. But he gets away. He gets away. But, you know, like there's that just sort of transactional nature of it. Well, you know, the dog is annoying people. Even though it's a dog, we must kill the dog, you know, yeah. because that's just going to be what's needed for the survival of this. Um, so I kind of took that. And then, you know, you continue with the story here. But the but then something kind of extraordinary happens. So basically, um, after she says yes, and they actually kind of have a nice little like it's a, it's a beautiful sort of like I don't know. Exchange, this exchange I think is key to the whole movie. Yeah, uh, I really really liked it. Um, and then th this is where it felt weird to me because after like that happened and you felt like things were going on the right track, all of a sudden she wandered off yeah. and they heard the dog and she found the dog. And she was just laughing at the dog who was following that she was planning on killing because she didn't give a shit about uh, laughing They're at prairie, prairie dogs. dogs. Yeah. And then the older um, handler of the wagon, who hasn't really said anything else other than like mutters, and the younger guy even says to her, he's like, I worry about him because he's getting old and like I don't want to abandon him and have him lose his income or like his sort of way of life. Yeah. He, he goes out, the older gentleman goes out to find her in a kind of... Uh, hilarical sort of state. It was, it was it, hilarical. Um, it's not a word, but like the, it, she seemed like she was hysterical. Yeah. She and I was like, this seems very strange. Right. Yeah. And then Indians, uh, Native Americans, come. Yeah. And attack, and he goes full bore. I know everything. Terminator, fucking Batman esque six paces ahead of everybody, taking out hordes of Indians in protection of yeah. her. And but he offers her, he 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 gives her uh, a sort of Sophie's choice before yeah. before the uh, before the Indian attack because 
you know, he he knows that if she gets caught, uh, how terrible. horrible things will happen. Yeah. So she he gives her a gun to kill herself. Yeah. There's a moment during this fight where uh, you know, every time Native Americans do this move in, in movies, I, I never see it coming. Yeah. Is he's, uh, it looks like a lone horse, but it turns out he was hiding along the side and he comes up uh, and swings a club and knocks the old guy down. And that at that point, she thought that he, he was, was done. Yeah. Turns out he ain't. Yeah. And he just wrecked some more face. But by the time he gets back to her, she had already taken her own life. She is the girl who got rattled. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, he has to go back to kind of see, tell the younger to see master. That and, thing, that, yeah. and that is the line that is in the in the book. He had no idea uh, what to say to him. Or wait, something like he that. had no idea what to say to Mr. Knapp. And he returns with President Pierce as well, which I think is ir- uh, ironic. Yeah. The dog survives. Um, there's, I think this is. So this is tragic. This story is very tragic. But what's it saying? I think, to me, the way this connects again is the sort of, the way in which death will come to surprise you no matter what. Like, for Mr. Knapp, you know, who's just sort of found this out of the life he's been looking for, um, this moment, like, like, I'm just thinking about, like, um, the, 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 the trail, I've forgotten his name, but having to explain this story to Mr. Knapp of how... He went out. They were, you know, captured by Indians, and she killed herself. You know, yeah. like, like, what's the easiest way to tell that story? Is it like, no, she was shot by Indians, or that she tragically shot herself because I told her to in case we were captured? Right. You know, like, and and in in either case, I'm 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 constantly reminded of how difficult life was back then, how transactional life was, but also how death is at every turn, no matter you know, no matter what. It's not a it's not like now commuting to LA, you know, where you just get on a plane kind of thing. Right. It's like it is life or death to get there. And so next time you're in an airport terminal, think about that. Yeah, think about the, the were they, are they called the pilgrims? What were they called? Uh, they, they were settlers. Uh, the settlers. They, but here's the thing in classical American, the, the pilgrims were the ones that came over for the first time on the, yeah. on the Mayflower, the Nina Pinta, yeah, Santa Maria, that sort of thing. The, the, the settlers are sort of different, even though you are 100% correct, because what are they doing? They're going on a pilgrimage. Therefore, They're not going on a pilgrimage. They're going to like... That's a they, pilgrimage. No, a pilgrimage. What's a pilgrimage? A pilgrimage to me is where you're going because of, uh, not sanctimonious, but for religious reasons. Like you're paying homage to a place. They're going to a place because... Well, the pilgrims didn't do looking, that from, from Britain to here. They, no, they, they did it for economic opportunity. Yeah, I th- I think but they're also called the pilgrims. Right. I, so, I, I don't think it's cool. Because, like, for example... I thought in, a long, in, any long journey could be a pilgrimage. I'm looking this up. No, because in Islamic culture, for example, when you go to the Hajj every year, that's called a pilgrimage. and that's, well, that's Yeah, that can be a pilgrimage, too. No, but that's you're, it's called a pilgrimage because you're paying respect to the gods. You, you know, you, you're doing this trip not because you're trying to get to that place, but you're paying respect to the place. A religious journey. So yeah. well, then why the hell are the American ones called the pilgrims? Because the, the American history is steeped in, in um, religious iconography. We, you know, for example, the pilgrims are all and put uh, up against the Native Americans who are called the savages. Yeah, you know, so they're the pilgrim. I guess because they the, the 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 religious rule was too strict, so they were making their pilgrimage to start their own version of it. Whatever, we're getting off track. Yeah. Um. So what's the point of this one then? I I have a, a slight idea. Um. So it's basically like you know, no matter how your end comes, even if it's clean, there's really not a clean sort of explanation. Like there's not, everything is incredibly complex, even down to our own minutia. And therefore where we've been shown for a lot of these other things, when death comes, it's like, and then death's there and then death's there. But it's, it's kind of a long, 
twisted journey to there. I guess there's a couple of interesting things to think about in this one, which is that death in this story was essentially unnecessary for the girl. Yeah. Like, it wasn't... uh, it wasn't necessarily her time because she had the old west T one thousand with her. Yeah, you know she could if if she had if he had explained the situation slightly differently, or if she had uh, observed what was happening a little more accurately, or you know for whatever reason not judgmental on her, then she wouldn't have to die. In fact, she could have gone on to have a happy life. And missed, the interesting thing here is Mister Knapp, uh, who has kind of mapped out this future for himself is about to have that entirely ripped, ripped away, away from him. Yeah. Uh, ripped away from him. So I think I think you know again it comes down to this nihilism of the you know like this this fatalism and nihilism kind of binary that they that yeah. they operate in. But it is it's it's not it's not tragic and negative. There's something poetic about the about the way in which her death comes which highlights the cr- which highlights the cruelty of the environment that they live in. The thing know? that this one does that the others don't do is it replaces the it it constantly is moving the onus of what the important thing a character has to do. Like what's the most important action a character has to take in this story? Yeah. And I would argue that it's Naps having to tell uh, the younger the younger um, well, caravan yeah. runner that this girl is dead because and it's right. weird because. The, the the short film itself never sets you up to think that that's what's going to be the most important part. Yeah, you because you're with the girl. You're with the girl, and then you're with the the uh, the younger gentleman, mm. and then because you keep he keeps going back to Naps and being like trying to tell him, and he's just like, rah, rah, rah. so you're like, oh, it's just an old man character you don't quite understand. But then the the crux of the important moment is actually going to be something a that he does and b that he has to do. So that's something that I thought was very interesting. It, it, this kind of did a um um a tug of war with uh, who has the onus of the most important thing. So so I, I said earlier that the, that I think there's a conversation that happens in this, which I think is the most important conversation in the, in the entire film, and that is the conversation between Nap and the girl, I've forgotten her name, she's played by Zoe Kazan, Yeah. Um, where they talk about uh, the brother having like fixed views of the world yeah. and like, and and being 100% certain, but he died. And she says, you know, like, you know, my, my brother would often chide me for being wishy-washy and, you know, and being uncertain of the world. And, and Mr. Knapp says, uncertainty, I think that is the, that is appropriate for matters of this world. And they get into a conversation about how, you know, like he says, our ancestors, you know, created these stories to to give themselves certainty of how the world worked, right. only to find out that the world didn't work that way, and instead they started replacing them with other yeah, stories. Yeah. And what's happening here in this film is that we kind of we we're led down this path to believe to to resolve what we believe is the the key dilemma of this film, which is like how is she going to survive the rest of this journey, and sure. she finds a way. But then uncertainty steps in in the in the form of like this attack. Which throws all of that for for a loop, and so Mr. Knapp's conversation, uncertainty is the appropriate uh, is an appropriate way to look at this world, kind of becomes the the sort of uh, the proposition for his life from this point on. You know, mm-hmm. like he's uncertainty is how she came into his life, and uncertainty is how she left his life. You know, like she just happens to come into his world, and then she leaves it just as suddenly. Um, so. You know, this is something that they've tackled uh, very explicitly in uh, in a film, uh, A Serious Man, mm-hmm. where they talk about, you know, basically, <laughs> I think they talk about the uncertainty principle and uh, Schrodinger, Schrodinger's principle uh. of, like, unknowing. And I think this is true for this one, is, like, the world is unknowing, and it's cruel, and it's hurtful, but that is the order of the world as we understand it. And I think this is where the blossoming of that idea that death comes to us all becomes a little bit more... 
poetic. You know, like death comes to us, but that is the way the world works. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, so and the uncertainty of it and of why it even has to happen. Yeah. Uh, kind of plays into the last piece, yeah. which is The Mortal Remains. And this is one of those stories that takes place in a stagecoach, so the entire thing is a back-forth thing. Yeah. Um, this I, feels most like an Edgar Allan Poe story. Yeah. You know, like it, it is sort of got this sort of... There's three people on one side, two people on the other, and as it, mm-hmm. the story is revealed, you start learning things. One of them talks way too much. The, uh, one is sort of an aristocrat, and the other is a bit of a business uh, a, a swindler kind of character, yeah, seeming. The, the trapper, the wife, and the poker player. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then on the other side are sort of the the people that seem to be running the coach, um, uh, a, 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 a Poe-esque type character and his consort who can sing and make people real sad or and, emotional. And, and can terrify you. And with, can with terrify you. And uh, the the rider. There's a moment where they're like, oh, let's ask the rider to stop. And he goes and asks the him. And yeah. The coachman. And it's just this terrifying, like, sleepy, hollow-esque, like, and I was like, oh, he's not going to stop. Yeah. And then... Uh, sorry. <laughs> then uh, as it's going, you start getting the feeling that this might not be an ordinary stagecoach and that these people might actually be dead already and being ferried to whatever judgment they have. Yeah. And then it kind of goes away and then you're not sure. And then they arrive at their destination and then they get to this hotel, uh, which has very interesting iconography over its doors, one being an angel, one being a devil. Yeah. And you open the doors and there's a big staircase full of light and things and they decide to do what they're going to do. Well, so there's an so the thing that I was really drawn to in this in this particular thing is the poker player. The poker player says something along the lines of like, every man has to play his own hand. And he talks about how at one time he, um, he was uh, playing poker with a friend of his and a friend asked him to wager for him. And he said, no, that is not possible. I cannot play your hand. Only you can play your hand. Right. And this is a reflection of what happens to Buster Scruggs at the very beginning of the film. Because yeah. that Buster Scruggs walks into a poker match and he, he this, this is a sort of an odd thing, but he sees, uh, you know, he steps in when another player leaves and they ask him to play the other player's hand. Right. And he refuses to do it. Which is after sort of, he looks at it. Yeah, after which is strange because he also has like a really good hand. No, he, he had, didn't. He had two pair. He had two pair. Yeah. Ace is high. That's a bad poker. I wouldn't bet shit on that. Really? Two pair? Two pair is not a bad hand. It's not great. It's not a bad hand though. I wouldn't I wouldn't buy into it if if the man just left at the table cuz he had a read of what the rest of the people at that table had. Is that a really bad? I think it's it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an it's, average to below average hand. Yeah. I think I think it's an okay hand. <laughs> now now I've kind of given away our poker strategies. Yeah. Um but um but he he rejects the hand and you know he's he says no I can't I'm not going to bet somebody else's hand. And that's the, something that this poker player says as well is that every man must bet their own hand and the way of life is all in the cards and and it's interesting because that character the poker player is the last character we see who kind of is the character who makes the realization of where he is sure he sees that he has entered the realm what we presume it's never explicitly stated no. but it's kind of inferred just from the iconography of the piece that they are on the road to judgment and um and he kind of willingly accepts his fate and 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 walks into it kind of almost gleefully, you know, as though like, well, this is the hand I've been dealt, so I'm going to play it now. And and I think that is the sort of like oddly triumphant moment in an otherwise abstract idea that death comes for us all. It's weird to say that I think everything we've talked about is that death comes for us all. Yeah. And death is unexpected, it is uncertain, the world is beautiful, and the world is indifferent. Yet here is this one character who sort of walks into it somewhat triumphantly. 
You know, like he's not, he's not taking. He takes by- agency of himself. Yeah, I mean, and that's the literally the only thing we can do. Yeah, is you take agency over our own death. You know, no, no other character in this entire piece has agency over their own death, and this character does. And I think that's sort of like, it's again, it feel you sort of need a minute to digest what this film, what that moment is doing, because it's sort of you're still kind of processing where they are, but but. You know, again, it was for me in a second viewing that that became sort of triumphant, um, that he walks into death kind of willingly and and acknowledging where he is and kind of he, you know, like yeah. Scruggs, he looks back at the camera to go, I know where I am. And yeah. this is what this I'm going to do, which is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, again, so I, I, I think sort of with that, I, I, I go back to my original thesis of these stories for me are far more enjoyable for me yeah. to to discuss uh, more than watch. And I think I've developed, as we've been doing this, a through line, if okay. you're interested. So okay. this is what this movie is saying in its six chapters. For you. For me. Yeah. And but we've kind of agreed on maybe 80% of this, it seems. Yeah. Uh, you, I, I'm just saying that because of the uncertainty principle. Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, you will be replaced when you least expect it by a lesser thing. <laughs> but the universe doesn't care <laughs> because the universe is an uncertain place and there's no easy explanation. But you need to accept it because death is the only thing one can have agency for. So those six statements actually tie into a lot of what we've discussed. Each of these things are sort of saying. So if I had to build a sentence out of all of that shit, that would be my ineloquent way of saying uh, that's what I think the movie's about. So you're saying basically do not go gentle into that good night. Yeah, I mean, we could have just read that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, uh, that's sort of my final thought, I think, is, is this film, uh, this anthology – is has very 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 interesting uh, things to say, very pertinent, very important things that um, I don't think are thought about or even sort of discussed or, or told to us in this manner often. While I do think that some of these are stronger than others, and some of them connected more with me than others did based on a sort of narrative level or what the story was actually about. Again, I think it is a hundred percent worth your time. I, I would see, I would ex- suggest to see this in a theater if you could, um, and then, but to have it on Netflix and have it be available, like I think it's, I think it's a great, a Again, great choice. We have, we have an unfair advantage which is that we both have projectors so we kind of get a sort of quasi-theatrical theatrical experience in in, in the home Uh, I agree with everything you said I I think though the only thing is is that I would walk away less certain of what the film means as much as I'm kind of like reveling in enjoying the way the film makes me think about the world from this point on Gotcha. and the thing that I think is interesting for me is that I found the film to be really delightful like I, I it, you know, like I found it. I found every story thoroughly engaging, and it's just it's that thing that just makes me so annoyed at the Coen Brothers because they're so fucking. <laughs> I don't know how 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 they can be so good at this, uh, but they are so good at this. They're so they're so good at telling poetic, beautiful stories in a sort of technically meticulous way that is g- much greater than the sum of its parts. And no no bitter evidence of this is a film which is made up of six distinct parts being greater than the sum, you know, because of their association with one another. Right. Um, so, you know, yeah, abs- I mean, I would be hard-pressed to say this won't appear in my top 10 list, but it will appear in my top 10 <laughs> list. I can, I'm pretty certain, depending on it. Um, with that in mind... I wanted to do one last thing before we kind of rounded out the episode. Just a just a kind of a thing to think about for for future episodes. Should I announce this has been the only podcast about the film The Ballad of Buster Scruggs? 
I mean, do you want to do it now or do you want to do it later? I think I'd like to do it now. Okay. All right, here we go. This has been the only podcast about the film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And also, I want to get into all the stuff we forgot. Uh, just so you know, that uh, the IMDb thing for this says, an anthology film <laughs> compromised of six stories, each dealing with a different aspect of life in the Old West. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's accurate. True. 100% Anyway, accurate. I did all the housekeeping I needed to do. Uh, just tell- one thing I want to yeah, do. Just please. a fun thing I want to do. It's December right now, 2018. So what has started happening now is that people are starting to compile their best of lists. Uh, probably one of the best ones is David Ehrlich of IndieWire p- produces a uh, uh, the best films of the year video that he that he curates every sure. year, and it's very, very good. Uh, beautifully cut uh, um, uh, it, you know, piece showing what the best films of the year are. I never watch it because there are films on that <laughs> in that video that I don't want to see any images from. I just want to go see. But what I did was I started curating a list of like, I, I just started copying and pasting what people's lists were for the best of the year. Sure. And I put them into a doc for us to uh, have a look at. Yep. I'm curious... There are some films, you know, I think I've got like six or seven lists here, maybe nine. Um, what films on this, there's a few films that appear regularly. So uh, First Reformed and Roma are seem to be dominating this year in terms of the best of uh, for many people. Sure. Um, and I think we're going to do, uh, well, we're pro- we may not do First Reformed because that, that's available on Amazon Prime now. I hope we can get that in, actually. I would love to. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I know we're going to do Roma. Mm-hmm. I know we're going to do If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but are there any other films on this list? Or that, on all of these lists. On all of any the, of these the lists. Two, the two that hit me was The Favorite. Yep. And Green Book, which I know we've talked about Green Book. You don't really have a desire to see, but I still have a strong sort of thing about that. I'd like to do that one. Again, if we miss it, I'll still watch it. Yeah. Um I do, I'm with Green Book, I'm 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 not sold at this point. That's all right. Yeah. Um yeah. What about you? Is there any real quick that you got uh that on here other than what you sort of said? Uh I think the only one uh that I think we really should do, but we haven't done is the writer. Uh, uh, the writer just won uh, the Gotham Awards Best Feature Film. I believe it was the Gotham Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has gotten a lot of buzz. And I think it may kind of sneak in uh, under the radar. Um, First Reformed, I also think First Reformed we should do, even though that, you know, the, both the writer and First Reformed were from much earlier in the right. year. Um, I would love to get those in before the end of the year because I feel like every year there's a film we kind of miss that's one of the key films of the year. Uh, and though Let's keep the tradition I, alive. Uh, I think First Reform <laughs> might be that one this year. Um, but also The Favorite. The Favorite might... I, I'm very keen to see The Favorite. Uh, Yagos Lanthimos, uh, who uh, did mm-hmm. um, The Lobster. Yep. Uh, and we missed... We didn't do... Um, what was this film last year? I've completely... I don't know, but I, I, just, I just hope that this one has a better ending than The Lobster. Oh, God. All right. Well, Shahir, when you are not not only loving anthologies, but taking that level <laughs> of... Uh, individual thing packaged into one greater thing, much like the list we just received. Where can folks find you? You can find me being less than the sum of my parts on my Whoa. website, www.shahirdowd, S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are soliloquying the the meaning of life into a succinct uh, paragraph or phrases, that probably could have been you know, further refined, but, you know, down into one one sentence. Where could people find you? You can find me just laying into the nitty-gritty at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z, on Instagram or Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please go check out Extra Credits, uh, the YouTube channel that I am now showrunning slash narrating for. We just did our 400th episode. 400? Uh, granted, I have not been around for all 400, <laughs> but I've been watching all 400, which is terrifying. You look, you don't look a day older uh, than episode 120. Oh, that's so nice. Um, So go check that out. And yeah, we'll be back next week with either Roma or 
into the Spider-Verse. I, but two films that I, I really want to do. Roma. So... Roma is the film I'm most excited I know, about this whole I know. Year. So we gotta we'll figure out what's what. But I those think are Into the Spider Verse is the movie you're most excited about this year, right? That's left. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh yeah. So uh until then, please email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or uh onlymoviepod on Twitter. Let us know uh what your films that you still need to see out of some of the top ten lists that you've seen are. Also um, let us know if you have a Netflix account. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we want to know. Can we have the password? Yeah. Uh, anyway, we will see you next week. Bye. Later. Bye.